chapter 88 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson, and this is a week in which we can talk about two more record-setting events in the history of British Prime Ministers. How exciting is that? A super rapid recap to start with. The Duke of Portland, you may remember from last time, had resigned as Prime Minister and promptly died. But the Tories, the former Friends of Pitt, had a slim majority of the Whigs in Parliament and could stay in power as long as a good proportion of the biggest single bloc, the Independents, continued to back them. So the question was, which of their number would follow Portland? Castlereagh and Canning had blotted their copybooks by fighting a senseless duel and precipitating a scandal in their party. That didn't stop Canning thinking he deserved the top job. Others in his party, however, preferred to go for someone who hadn't plunged them into scandal and who had even built himself a bit of a track record in government. That was the man we first met when he was a bright young hope about to become Solicitor General, Spencer Percival. This is the first and less interesting of the two records he set. He is not just the first, but to date the only former Solicitor-General, or indeed Attorney-General, ever to have gone on to become Prime Minister. He'd served as Chancellor of the Exchequer under Portland, even though the appointment had come as a bit of an unwelcome shock to him. He'd been hoping for Home Secretary, and had no previous experience in finance. In the end, though, he'd done well, and on two main fronts. He'd continued the process of blockading France and its puppet states in Europe by means of a series of orders in council. These government decrees had already started under the Ministry of All the Talents. He's credited with an order in council imposing retaliatory sanctions against neutrals for trading with France, issued in 1807, soon after the bombardment of Copenhagen. He was also the main author of the King's Speech opening Parliament that year. And his budget of 1808 made clever use of relatively limited tax increases combined with new government loans negotiated at favourable rates of interest. For all his initial anxiety, he managed the public finances well, making it possible to keep funding Arthur Wellesley's army in Portugal. This was a time when the defeat of Austria and the subsequent collapse of the Fifth Coalition, with no new coalition in the offing, left the Peninsular War as the only show in town as far as continuing the battle against Napoleon was concerned. Along with Canning ruling himself out with his duel, this all made Spencer Percival a bit of a shoo-in, and King George III appointed him Prime Minister on the 4th of October 1809. That was George III's last such appointment. Why? Because the king fell back into insanity a couple of years later, so one of Percival's tasks was setting up a regency to take over. In February 1811, the king's son, also called George, became Prince Regent, in effect acting monarch. Just what kind of man was he? We've already mentioned that he and his father had fallen out in a big way. The son was a spendthrift, a heavy drinker and a womaniser. At 21 he fell for Mary Fitzherbert, a Catholic widow, and secretly married her, though it was against the law for the spouse of a Catholic to become king, and indeed against the law for the heir to the throne 
to contract any marriage without the monarch's consent, which he certainly didn't have. Despite an income of over £6 million a year in modern terms, which most of us would probably find it possible to scrape by on, in the 1780s he needed a parliamentary grant out of the public purse of the equivalent of £20 million to pay his debts. In addition, he received nearly £8 million to do up Carlton House, where he lived in London. Well, you know how expensive home improvements can be. He then gave way to pressure from his father and married Caroline of Brunswick. This was possible because the previous marriage was illegal and therefore not binding. George and Caroline detested each other and both continued to have lovers. For George, that included a long on-off relationship with Mary Fitzherbert, but it was by no means limited to her. One of the causes of his breach with his father was that he was a friend and fan of Charles James Fox and the Whigs. There was a fear that, as regent, he might try to dismiss the Tories and appoint Lord Grenville and his key supporter in the Commons, Charles Grey, to office. Grey, incidentally, was the man who, as Earl Grey, launched a new brand of flavoured tea on the world. He had also for a while been the lover of Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire, as portrayed by Kira Knightley in the film The Duchess. We've met her before when she was having an affair with Charles James Fox in the early 1780s. In the event, Prince George only tried to get the government to turn itself into a coalition with the Whigs. But neither Grenville nor Grey was interested, and George had no choice but to leave the existing government in place. It's at this time, incidentally, that another small step with huge consequences was taken in British constitutional history. Another change in practice, with nothing in writing, but in force ever since. This was the principle that a Prime Minister had to have majority support in the House of Commons and could not simply be appointed to satisfy the monarch's wishes. That made George III, the last king to have exercised that kind of authority, abandoned since the regency of his son. George is also associated with what's known as the regency style, he commissioned some of the more spectacular buildings, notably the Royal Pavilion in Brighton. While the classical architecture of the Georgian period generally continued, he introduced a certain flamboyance and willingness to be influenced by other idioms. The pavilion, for instance, is heavily marked by Indian architectural fashion. The style also affected the personal appearance and behaviour of the elite. George was for a time close to George Beau Brummel, the man for whom the notion of a dandy might have been invented. He popularised a whole new set of fashions in clothes, as well as better personal hygiene, including daily bathing and toothbrushing. He was also proud of taking five hours to dress. Later, he and the prince would fall out. Meeting Beau Brummel at a party, the prince, by then obese and sensitive about it, ostentatiously cut him, failing to greet him though he was looking straight at him. Brummel turned to another guest and asks, Arvenly, who's your fat friend? That was the end of Beau Brummel's time in high society. He lived another 27 years, but died in poverty and insane through syphilis in France in 1840. Percival remained as Chancellor of the Exchequer despite being Prime Minister. He steered Britain through some dark economic times. 
Napoleon's continental system was wreaking havoc on British trade, and a run of three bad harvests in a row led to renewed hunger and economic turmoil. Percival staved off a full financial collapse by the bold step of making the paper currency legal tender. People had to accept it in payment and could not insist on gold instead. That kept the system running, though it provoked a great deal of upset among traditionalists, for whom the gold standard, allowing banknotes to be exchanged for gold on demand, had nearly divine status. The Peninsula War began to turn Britain's way, if slowly, and after some serious reverses. Wellesley had advanced into Spain and taken a couple of victories, one of which won him the title of Viscount Wellington. The dukedom would come later, but let's think of him as Wellington from now on. After his wins, he took a few beatings by powerful French forces, which gradually drove him back into Portugal and then followed him into that country. Wellington had, however, done something clever. He'd set up a line of fortresses and redoubts near Lisbon known as the Torres Vedras, in communication with each other by semaphore and with scorched earth in front of them. He'd evacuated the people living outside the line and then burnt and destroyed all sources of supplies there. When the French got close to the capital, he simply turned his own army of British and Portuguese regulars into a mobile force that could intervene wherever the French chose to attack, while the Torres Vedras line was permanently manned by what he regarded as secondary troops. The French realised the line was too powerful for them to take, and after a month trying to live off a country that had been systematically denuded of anything to live off, they pulled back and abandoned their attack on Lisbon. It was a success, but a small one. The bulk of the effort against Napoleon remained economic, and it was certainly hurting the French. The British blockade was denying Europe access on the one hand to luxury goods, such as coffee and sugar, hardly essential products, but ones whose absence caused considerable resentment, and on the other hand to far more vital resources, above all the earnings from foreign trade that Napoleon needed to keep buying military supplies. He indeed had to start making exceptions to his own blockade just to try to address some of his economic difficulties. In addition, the continental system was anything but secure. As well as breaches through the Iberian Peninsula, Napoleon's far-from-reliable ally Russia was less than enthusiastic about applying it. British goods were still reaching continental Europe through Russian ports. As for Britain, its orders in council may well have been heavily limiting the trade of France and its allies, but both Napoleon's continental system and its own blockade were harming the British economy too. We're seeing the same kind of phenomenon today, when sanctions against Russia, whether you favour them or not, are causing difficulties in the countries applying them, as well as in their target. The hope is that the target suffers more and the sanctions achieve their aim before the countries applying them suffer excessively. In addition, back then, one of the effects of the British blockade, which involved the Royal Navy intercepting the ships of neutral nations and seizing cargoes where they deemed them to be contraband, was getting right up the noses of those neutrals. Nowhere was that irritation more heated than in the United States of America, which cursed the very expression, orders in council. By 1812, relations were worsening so sharply that war looks likely. 
these circumstances led the British government to doubt whether the orders in council should be maintained. And now we come to the other record that Spencer Percival set, a much more dramatic one. Indeed, it's perhaps the only event in his life for which he is remembered by most people who remember him at all. On the 11th of May, 1812, Percival arrived at the House of Commons for a debate on the orders in council. He was met by a man with a long, festering grievance against the government, John Bellingham. Bellingham drew a pistol and shot the Prime Minister. Percival died within minutes, and Bellingham was hanged a week later. That makes Percival the only Prime Minister to have been assassinated. But before any Brit feels any sense of superiority over the Americans with their four murdered presidents, we should remember that if Britain has, indeed, avoided murders of its leaders over the modern period when those four presidents died, it has plenty of murdered kings in its more distant past. Possibly William II, that hunting accident, has never been fully cleared up. Edward II, Richard II, possibly starved to death. Henry VI and Edward V, one of the princes in the Tower. That's without mentioning Richard III, killed in battle against rebelling fellow Englishmen, or Charles I, executed after a trial, but not one that could possibly be called fair. Percival fell to an assassin's bullet, and Britain had to find itself a new Prime Minister. That's our subject for next week. In the meantime, if you haven't yet started listening to Who the Hell is Norfolk, the companion podcast to this one, whose issues it discusses in a more light-hearted, conversational way, now's your chance to catch up with it. Enjoy it, and thanks for listening. (laughs) 